two weeks ago, it was 30 below zero here. You have to feed cows. They can't be on grass, especially finished cattle, because finished cattle have an exceptionally different requirement for feed than a mother cow. You know, they're growing, they're putting on weight, they're doing other things. Mother cows have almost no need for protein. They're already grown. They, they need energy, but they don't have near the nutritional need of a finished calf that's going to give you the type of steak experience that you as a customer would want. You are now tuning in to the Roughnecks Podcast with your host, Cole Nixon. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Roughnecks Podcast. We are on to episode number 223. Um, I don't really have any announcements for the podcast yet, but be on the lookout because there's a lot of things that Reno, Dante, and I are working on in the background. There's a lot of cool things that are going to be happening here, more so this summer, but we got some things coming up. But Joining me today is an. I'm excited to bring this guest on. Without further ado, Jeff Smith. Welcome to the Roughnecks Podcast. Thanks, Cole. How you doing, brother? Not too bad. How about yourself? Been busy. Yeah, been very busy. And uh, right after this, uh, I just got noticed that we got three semi loads of cattle coming. So I'll be out unloading cattle in the dark. So. <laughs> Um, just to kind of kick the episode off, I like to allow the guests to give a background on themselves to kind of tell us who you are and like what you do. Sure. Um, well, so I say this humbly, but I think it's the easy way to describe myself. I'm a, a numbers nerd, uh, but I'm also an agricultural industry expert. Uh, and when I say agricultural industry, I don't mean the cattle industry. I don't mean the corn industry. I mean all of those industries and how they intersect. Uh, and how they intersect across regions and across value chains. Uh, luckily, I have a degree in ag business, uh, minors in finance and accounting from Colorado State University. Uh, I grew up in eastern Oregon, uh, lived in Nebraska and Minnesota, uh, done agricultural work on three separate continents, so North America, South America, and Europe, and also have a stint in private equity before we went off and kind of did some of our own stuff. So when you put, you know, two decades of ag industry experience in multiple verticals, you know, with a topping of finance, private equity and investment expertise, you get a business thought process around agriculture that is not really industry norm. Uh, so I, in a lot of ways, I end up playing devil's advocate for whatever we're talking about in ag. Uh, but in probably a more nuanced approach. I try to help people see how it all works together. Uh, because if all you talk about is what's best for the pork industry, you're, you're really missing all the different ways that ties together. Uh, and I think that type of an approach that my wife and I have taken with our company, Colorado Craft Beef and, and our other uh, entities uh, allowed us to get to where we're at and with a trajectory that quite frankly, is baffling to me at this point. So it's been a lot of fun. Um, I did grow up in ag, uh, not to the level of my wife. So my wife is actually a fifth generation rancher. Uh, I call her our cow nerd. I mean that lovingly. Uh, but I grew up around ag. I grew up on harvest crews and hay crews and working in the mountains and gathering cattle and all of that stuff. Uh, and, you know, parlayed that into what's been 20 years out of college next year. And, no, just uh, running and gunning and working. So, 
I was going to ask, like, kind of what sparked your interest in the ag? Was it just growing up around it, just something that you had been around? And then, like, as you start to, like, be around it more, you really truly grasp on to, and kind of see the puzzle of what it is? A little bit. Uh, I've always been a puzzle guy. So even uh, I'd spent about six years running a construction company in eastern Oregon. And even in that time frame. Uh, we were doing ag construction. We were building onion and potato storage buildings. We were doing underground water mains for irrigation systems. Uh, at one point, we worked with an engineer, and we were actually looking at uh, irrigation projects in Mongolia and Egypt. So it's very interesting because if you take agriculture, you know, as you start to build the puzzle um, and you start looking around the world, you realize how far advanced some areas of the world are and then other areas of the world are just not. So uh, I actually consulted on a small project. Uh, it was a seed plant in Africa. And that was all I heard. I was acting as like the consultant's consultant's consultant. I was so far removed. I don't even know who it was for. But we were talking about receiving seed into this plant in a space somewhere in Africa. And I'd ask them, I said, well, because they were telling me how big the plant needed to be from a production capacity standpoint. And I said, well, guys, let's talk through uh, the infrastructure locally. They said, what do you mean? I said, is the road systems good? They said, well, we don't know. I said, you need to think about that. And they said, why? So, well, because if you're unloading, you know, grain carts with 50 bushels, as opposed to lines of semis, like they do in Iowa, there's only gonna be so much production you can do. So you have to understand what happens three steps before you and five steps after. Uh, and that happens in construction. It happens in finance. It's It just becomes this operational model that you have to understand where it all goes. Uh, and agriculture is just one of those things that, you know, the reason we moved back to the family ranch in 2015, we were going to start a family. And our two little girls love the ranch. You know, they're two and four. Uh, Emma was born right before COVID. She's our oldest. But my wife and I's conversation was, how do we raise these kids to teach them what we want to teach them in a way that's not in agriculture. I couldn't find an answer. Uh, I've talked to a really good buddy of mine. He lives in Spokane and he's like, I got to get out of town. My, my daughter needs to have some animals. I said, well, you guys got dogs. And he's like, yeah, dude, but the dogs are pal. Feeding your friend is way different than it's 10 below the cows need fed. And that level of, sacrifice and that level of dedication is something that you know i think is only rivaled by the military and you know with our company we do a lot of work with the military and uh, i've made the comment before that there are very few things more western than seeing somebody horseback in the american west moving cattle uh, one of those things would be a rifleman standing at attention guarding the gates that allow us to have conversations like this mm -hmm. And if those are the top two things that we're talking about to define America, I will be damned if I know what the third closest thing is behind the military and agriculture and that love for it. And, and agriculture is interesting. People, well, you know, fisheries are part of agriculture. The forest service is part of agriculture. Uh, or if you, you know, your podcast is called the roughnecks podcast, you know, you start talking about roughnecks and you're talking about the oil field. Most of those guys are ag guys somehow. So it's it's that old adage. I don't know if you've heard it, but it's, you know, once in your life, you need a banker. Once in your life, you need a doctor. And once in your life, you need an undertaker. But three times a day, you need a farmer. And 
you know, being able to have conversations like this and talk to the masses and start to demystify some of the disconnect between the general community and the ag community is really what we're here for. And that's, that's the greater mission of Colorado Craft Beef and my wife and I. Yeah, so let's just go into that. What exactly is Colorado Craft Beef and like how did it all get started? When did it start and how did it all get started? Sure. Uh, so my wife's family founded the ranch about a quarter mile over my right shoulder in 1913. And since then, the ranch has grown. Uh, and in 2015, when we moved back to the ranch, uh, we had a conversation with my father-in-law who still runs the, the family ranch. We don't have any ownership of it. We help. Uh, we don't get paid from it. We are our own entity. Colorado Craft Beef is us. It's just my wife and I. There's been no cattle gifted to us, no land gifted to us. This is our contribution. Uh, and luckily, we both came from corporate America, so we both had some pretty lucrative jobs that allowed us to bootstrap this company. Uh, and without those jobs, I don't think you could have got it done. That's the biggest hurdle in agriculture today is the amount of capital needed to really go make a move is sometimes prohibitive uh, to the point that the cattle you run on a certain piece of ground typically won't make the ground payment. Like it just doesn't self-sustain. You have to have a war chest. Uh, so in talking to my father-in-law, my wife and I were talking about succession planning with him and, you know, generally speaking, I said, you know, Dave, I understand enough about your business to be, be, you know, aware of it. Can we continue that for the next generations? And he said, no. He said, you got to find a different way. So to Glenn's podcast, you know, I listened to that. That was a great conversation. He's doing it, man. He's finding a different way and he's doing it the way he can where he's at. But we all have to understand that in ag, if you go, sometimes if you go 10 miles, you're in a totally different climate. Soil type's different. Resources are different. Uh, if you go 100 miles, it could be like you're on the gosh damn moon. Like you're just totally different. So when people say the way to do it is X, uh, I can't buy that. In really any form factor within agriculture production, you can't buy that you must do it like this. And so with Colorado Craft Beef, my wife and I both came from sales. Uh, we understood the ROI on the commercial cattle space. And we wanted to be able to build a platform to do things like we're doing now. And we knew that we needed to have direct-to-consumer. We knew we needed to reach out. And we needed to find a way to connect with the population. Uh, agriculture for years has been talking about educate the consumer. I'm like, well, that comes from a little place of arrogance, everybody. And most people don't like to be talked to like that. So maybe let's uh, have a little salesmanship and connect with these with these people and invite them into what we do. And so in 2017... Uh, the concept for Colorado Craft Beef was officially launched. Uh, market research, website, all the crazy stuff. I mean, we had almost six figures invested before we even sold our first cattle. And in 2018, we started shipping nationally. And right now we're doing almost as much revenue a month as we did in all of 2019. It's The, the scale has been awesome. Uh, the support has been incredible. But the feedback and the connection to people has been so much fun. And, you know, the fun part is some of our biggest competitors are some of our best friends. You know, maybe they sell to restaurants. Maybe they sell here. Maybe we compete there. Maybe we don't. But 
the famine mindset that surrounds agriculture is something we're really trying to combat because a lot of people in ag think if I sell a steak, then Cole, you can't sell a steak too. And the market's just too big to have that kind of mindset. And if that's how you're trying to operate your business, you're going to struggle. Um, so as a business, uh, pr- approximately 95% of our revenue is direct to consumer. Um, and outside of what's typical in the actual production people that do this, because there's a lot of buyers and resellers of meat that are creative with their math or creative with their marketing. And they'll say, you know, we do this, this, and this, but they have no connection to the production of what's happening. They're buying and relabeling stuff. Uh, we are different in that capacity. You know, the one part of the cattle supply chain we don't have is we don't have a mother cow herd. So, you know, Glenn runs mother cows and he takes steers and he puts them through his program. That's awesome. And he's able to, you know, drive his genetics to make that better for him. Uh, we are working on some of that. Uh, we are not set up to have a cow herd ever. Uh, that's just not the ground we're in. We're in the sand hills and we don't have hay ground. So typically in the cow life or the cow cycle, the cow herd cycle in the cattle industry, you need to have winter ground and you need to be able to grow your own feed for them. Because if the hay market does something crazy, like where we're at, if Texas is in a drought, Texas knows that a month before we come out of before our hay comes off the fields, they will buy us out. And this happened like three years ago. We were we were bringing hay in from North Dakota because that was the cheapest place you could find it, even with trucking it 500 miles. Um, so we buy calves from other ranches. We dictate health protocols. We've now implemented genetic testing where we're genetic testing every calf to see their propensity to gain, how they should marble, and then building our harvest schedule around that. Uh, we have our own feed yard um, that we own and operate. And that feed yard we took down at the end of 2022. Uh, we just recently acquired our own processing facility. So in August of this year, we announced a partnership uh, with some pretty high-level people and uh, bought that harvest facility with those partners. And so now we own the processing facility and the office I'm sitting in right now is probably a hundred feet from my house. Uh, and this is a building that we put up at the ranch in 2020 that is grocery store certified and all the orders are shipped off the ranch. Uh, so that's Colorado craft beef in a nutshell. We've shipped to all 50 States. Uh, but probably the craziest development is those partners and who they are. Uh, and in August, uh, like I mentioned, we did partner with these folks. Uh, and it's Jocko Willink, Pete Roberts, Brian Littlefield, the three founders of Jocko Fuel. Uh, there are other people on the team that come from that realm, like Leif Babin and Dave Burke. Uh, Dr. Sean Baker, who's famous for uh, having written the Carnivore Diet book. Uh, for anybody that wants some great content, look up Staff Sergeant Travis Mills. He is a quad amputee out of the 82nd Airborne that had a bad day when he set his backpack on somebody else's bomb. <laughs> but he's a motivational speaker. He's part of our team and just the most salt-of-the-earth guy ever. And, you know, we've got some other people on the team. We've got some other private investors that were friends of ours. Um and then, you know, probably the funnest one to talk through on the nutrition side is Chris Cavallini, the owner of Nutrition Solutions out of Tampa, Florida. So our our investor network is now literally coast to coast, you know, California to Florida to Maine, where most of the origin and Jocko Fuel guys reside. And 
it's just going gangbusters. Uh, we in, we officially announced it in November. Uh, we teased it kind of throughout the late part of the summer, but it's put us on a set of roller skates with rockets on them that uh, I'm doing my very best to continue to steer correctly. I really like that you talked about kind of going back a little bit where you said, like talked about connect versus educate when, you know, me and you were on the phone earlier and you said, you know, it, it kind of comes off bad when you'd say like, I'm going to educate you. And instead yeah. of like having those connect, like, I mean, think about it. Nobody likes going to school nine times out of 10. That person, people don't like going to school. They don't, they want to learn, but they don't like being told like, Hey, sit down. I'm going to educate you. If we sit mm-hmm. down and hey, we're going to connect, like we're going to do this and, and it, you're learning at the same time through those connections. I really like that part. That's where I think a lot of people in multiple different industries kind of, you know, get a bad name for themselves at times where they, they think that they have to tell everybody how it should be. And like you said, there is no one way to do it. And that's in everything. And I think partially that's become, you know, more of a thing, especially with social media. Everybody has these posts of like, you want to gain 500 or five, a thousand followers do X, Y, Z, and it'll happen a hundred. Like there's all these different things that people think that there's one way to do things. When in reality, nobody does things the same way. Like I, I started a podcast completely different then Jocko started his, then Joe Rogan started that, like everything's going to be at a different path and a different pace. Yeah. And you know, it's, uh, I do jujitsu as well. I just recently got my blue belt in December. So for any of the bandwagon guys out there, I did not start jujitsu because we met Jocko. I'd been doing jujitsu long before that. Uh, but the, the thing in jujitsu you learn is a, a certain move can be taught a certain way by four different people. You may you may absorb it completely different, and you find something that even other higher belts are going, man, that's cool. Or these three black belts talk about this particular movement, and then a purple belt will look at you and go, "Hey, man, with your body type, consider this." It's crazy, but if you're if you're not willing to learn, the connection is almost impossible. But also, you know, to your point about connecting instead of educating, nobody likes to be told they're stupid. <laughs> it's just just human nature. Um, and that gotcha mentality of social media and everything else, everybody's just trying to get a some sort of a viral moment. That only lasts for so long, and you don't build real relationships that way. So that is one of the things we're very diligent about is building the relationships, building the the network through long-term properly motivated action not through you know what's what's fancy and shiny today yeah i feel like in every type of business relationships are the biggest thing whether it is connections to help grow your business or relationships with those especially in the beginning days those beginning clients because those beginning clients if you build a relationship with them, they become reoccurring clients. That's what I think a lot of people, like, when they start out their business, it's like, I, I know a lot of people that will send handwritten letters, like, like some of the first orders for the first, like, two years of their business, or, like, you know, message them, email them directly from, like, not just, like, an automated, and, like, just little things like that can actually help go a long way because you're building that relationship. How important has relationships been, especially now with, you know, the big part, bigger part name partnerships, but, like, how, how important were relationships at the beginning and especially compared to now? Relationships are key in whatever business you're trying to do. 
And that business could be something as your own personal brand, whether or not that's public. Uh, so in this is one of the great pieces of advice I got in my sales career. They said, always do good business, always build your network, always build your relationships. Because if you get fired or the company folds tomorrow, the company can never own those relationships. You may have non-competes. There's other legal crap that could be in the way. But, you know, Cole, if you and I are buddies and I have a bad day and I'm a raging a-hole tomorrow, probably next week you'll be like, hey, man, are you better? <laughs> like, <laughs> you were kind of off your game. You know, did, did, you, uh, did, you get, did you get some energy drinks? Did you get some sleep? Because you were kind of a jackass last week. And your best friends go, my bad. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. the, people, the people that are trying to own you for a mistake or anything else, that's not a relationship. And... You know, you need the relationships that are going to foster good business, foster good vibes. And the second in business, the only thing you're worried about is the money is the second you start to fail. Uh, but relationships have been key. Um, actually, the Harvest facility that we purchased was because of a relationship. The gentleman that owned the facility uh, was one of my uh, classmates in college. So I'd known him forever. But he watched us do good business for years. And then when I asked him to buy the facility, he turned me down the first three times. And I could have been an a-hole. I could have detonated that relationship because I didn't get what I wanted. But the timing wasn't right. And then we finally had to talk. We talked about it, and we talked about it, and we finally got it put together. And I'm happy to say that he reinvested. He still runs the facility. He's my business partner now. That's that doesn't come without a little bit of humility on every side of the table and an ability to want to pull the boats the same direction. Yeah, I really like, too, that you talked about, you know, it didn't happen all all, all at once. Like the first I, I just what you say three times he turned you down or mm -hmm. whatever it was. That's where a lot of people, I think, get discouraged in business. And I don't personally have my own business for say I have the podcast. It's not like officially a business, but. You know, you look at, you're going to have the ups and downs. And especially, I kind of want to go back to, you talked, you know, it was a slow start at first with, you know, Colorado Beef. Tell me what's the mindset like of when you're not necessarily, you know, getting as much revenue as you would, you know, hope to see and that kind of thing. Dude, it sucks. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. A business is hard. Um. A great example of that, I've got an analyst that does some work for me on the consulting side. He is crazy good with finance. And when he sits down and does an ag model, he looks at me every time and he's like, dude, every one of these items has a 10 to 30% variability. I'm like, yeah. And he goes, and if they all go negative, you're going to go bankrupt. I said, yeah. And that's how agriculture operates every day. Um so without belaboring all the finance stuff, because Glenn did a very good job of breaking down the struggles of agriculturalists in the U.S. Uh, so to anybody listening that wants to really dive into that, all the financial stuff Glenn talked about and the financial hardships that people are up against were spot on. And that is carte blanche across the industries, across the country, literally across the planet. Different issues in Africa than you have in Georgia, but those are by and large, laws of agriculture. Um, but for those entrepreneurs out there, it's really easy to focus on the negative and you got to be optimistic. 
you've got to be honest with yourself. And quite frankly, that negative self-talk doesn't help you. I'm not saying that you're not going to have bad days. We all have bad days. I mean, I I probably had three bad days just today with some of the stuff we're dealing with. But what else would you do? I mean, there's a level of nonsense no matter what you're doing. If it's your day job, if it's, you know, whoever you choose as a life partner, I love my wife to death, but there are some days that she thinks I'm being a jerk. And there are other days I just go hide in my office and we're both right. Nobody's perfect. But how do you deal with that negativity? You know, what do you do? Uh, Do you pass the buck to your customer? Do you pass the buck to your supplier? Do you own it? You know, take control of what you can and, you know, don't worry about the stuff you can't fix. But, you know, when you're looking at revenue numbers and they're not great, Sometimes you got to take a leap of faith. And the more calculated you can do that, the more risk management you can do is really what it comes down to. Um, And that's one of the things we've been very diligent with, with the beef company is managing the risk. Because the second we harvest those cattle and they turn from live cattle into steak, that's a totally different market. I'm now in the beef market. I'm no longer in the cattle market. I now I'm competing with big guys with big checkbooks. So, you know, take those risks, understand, uh, one of my mentors told me, he goes, you need to understand that the more successful you get, the better you have to get at failure. Mm. Full stop. He goes, the bigger successes you have, the bigger failures you're going to have. And if those failures define your day, your hour, your week, your month, your whatever, you're going to go under. So you have to take those failures and not let them drag you down like a boat anchor. I mean, uh, this time last year, we were switching employees at the feed yard. We were changing employees. We had a fire three days after Christmas that burned down all of our equipment. And mind you, at that point, you know, you're staring at all these cattle that need fed. I was actually walking around out in the yard uh, at the feed yard walking around in the driveway, basically on the phone, finding equipment. I need loaders. I need feed trucks. Like I need to get this back together. And the fire marshal walked out. All my shit is right over there smoldering. And he goes, Hey man, you want to take a look at this? And I was like, no, I need to finish this phone call. He goes, well, why? I said, cause that loader that's steaming over there. That's now a shell of a former piece of equipment that used to run is going to do no good in 12 hours when these cattle need fed. We'll talk about that in a minute. And he looked at me and he was like, it's a really interesting way to think about it. I was like, dude, focusing on the stuff that's literally smoldering, isn't going to help me. Mm -mm. And you know, at nine o'clock that night, I rolled into the house. I rolled home and all the way back to the ranch, which is only about 15 miles. I got, I was on the phone with every one of our customers that have cattle in that yard. And there was just a couple of them. Um, cause our feed yard is like a, uh, it's a little bed and breakfast. There are our cattle in there. And then occasionally we feed for other people to make sure that there's enough work to keep employees properly paid. Well, I talked to all of our customers that night and said, Hey, I'm sure you heard we had a fire. I need you to understand. I have equipment in place. There will be no, there will be no gap. Everything's fine. Well, that's not a fun phone call to have. You you're just eating a shit filled sandwich all the way back you smell like smoke. You yeah, and it's you know a six-figure number of equipment that just burned up. What do you do? 
you got to work through it. You know, similar to to uh, Glenn's comment about that year they lost all those cows to the wolves. You know, like you said, they considered hanging it up as as anybody probably would. But if you're not going to figure out a solution to a problem, what's the definition of that? It's called whining. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, it's it's finding those failures and to quote Jocko, good. Good. What are we going to do? And six months later, we have we had better equipment. Insurance all came through. Our, I mean, we we upgraded some systems with some of that. Like it ended up being better. But I'm here to tell you that in the moment, it was not great. <laughs> no, I think those are the moments in life and in business that really can help define where it's going to go. You know, when you have those those feel like you just got knocked on your ass. It's what are you going to do now? Like you can either just lay there and just let it and give up or you can get up and it will more than likely I've I said this a million times. You will learn more from your failures than you ever will your successes. And mm-hmm. you know, having a fire is not necessarily a failure, but if you would have just sat around and not done anything about it, you, you would have never, it would have been, you know, bad, another bad day the next day. Or like mm-hmm. you said, 12 hours when that, when those, when the cattle needs fed. So that's, yeah. I mean, th- this is very, I love all this business talk because it's just, it's so, it, see, you're, you're very, you definitely have the business mind and how has that business mindset, like how much has it helped you? And does, do you feel like it sets you apart from, you know, other cattle and like uh, other people in the cattle industry and the beef industry? So I think it does. Um, and I would say that actually the combination of my wife and I's skill sets is what sets us apart. So my wife actually has a master's degree in cow nutrition. I mean, when I say she's our cow nerd, I mean that. That is a thousand percent accurate. Um, but it was, you know, a great example of that is when we first started the beef company, the question was, hey, we're gonna we're gonna start this thing. What are we gonna do? And we made the intentional decision. So intentional, that's the point. No, we didn't make a decision. We made an intentional decision to start the business at a level that we did not compete with our neighbors. Like we're in cattle country. Almost everybody I know has cows and they sell freezer beef or they do whatever. I don't want to compete with them. There's enough people here doing that. So we made the intentional decision to, to run past that line in the sand. And now that costs money. Can you do that? That's a whole different question of function versus just math. But we've had to make that same intentional move dozens of times in the last decade. A great example of that is how did we find the partners we're working with? Well, I I knew people in private equity and the amount of money we needed was not an off-putting amount of money. But do you want investors that want to know when their returns are going to be there? Or do you want Brian, Pete, and Jocko that can potentially grow sales? Or Pete and Brian who have stood Jocko Fuel up from an idea or stood Origin up from an idea that already go direct to consumer that can say, hey, maybe don't think about that. What's the value add? Now, do you maybe have preferential treatment for certain people. What do you do? Like you have to have a business mind to get there and you have to be willing to understand the value of what you're doing. 
And as you work through all those processes, uh, I think the thing that sets us apart is something I talked about a little while ago is we are very intentional to not have that famine mindset. Because while I love my brothers and sisters in agriculture, sometimes they frustrate the living hell out of me because everybody's worried about what the neighbor is doing. Everybody's worried about what the other guy's getting for this. You know, if like people have talked to us about the beef company and they're like, well, I see what you sell beef for. If I sell you calves, what's my cut? I'm like, well, we're just selling calves. If you want to carry cattle and take them through the program with us, we can do that. It will be under our terms. This is how we pay for that. And you can make more money, but you have to carry some of the paper. And they're like, no, we're not doing that. You need to pay us a premium because you're selling it for a premium. I'm like, no, because I have all this risk. Like, if you want to put your money where your mouth is, hop on the bus, man. Let's go. But it, it's interesting. It's very hard to uh, dissect at a you know grand level without really being in the weeds. But everybody's always worried about what the other guy's doing. Uh, and everybody will look around at you know selling cattle. Well, what what did yours weigh? Mine were a little bigger. Or, well, this guy got this much. That's what I need. I'm like. Why And granted, you're talking a commodity market, right? So there's some of that that needs to happen. But at the same time, do you know your cost of production? Do you know what you really need to make? Um, because to Glenn's point, just to reiterate the one that drives me crazy in ag, if you have five generations of equity behind you and you take over a family farm, you don't have to be profitable to continue to operate. The bank will loan based on the equity you have, and you may chew up all that equity until they take the farm. And I'm not saying that's the banker's fault by any means, but you need to be a good enough businessman to know when you're making it or when you're fucking it up. And that that guy looking in the mirror that watches you brush your teeth every morning, that is the hardest guy to be honest to. When you can look in the mirror and go, I got to figure this out. Hey, I'm I'm not good at this. I'm not good at that. What can I work on? And that is different than just beating yourself up, right? We're trying to grow. You're trying to get better. But that internal honesty and that intentionality is, I think, the most important thing at business. You know, I've said it about employees. I can't teach work ethic or character. I could teach you everything else. Like if you've never worked cattle, we can get you straight on working cattle. If you've never ran equipment, we can do that. But if you don't come to work on time and you don't care, there's nothing I can physically do about that. So what kind of employees do you have? Do you have the younger generation or a little bit older generation? Because that is one of the things I feel like I'm part of. I mean, I'm only 25 and like a lot of my I wouldn't call them friends, like people I went to high school with and college, not as much college, but a lot of high school friends. Like I look at where they're at and what they're doing. Like some of them don't even have jobs and like just no work ethic. And it's like, I, I don't get it because the work ethic was something taught to me when I was young. Like you work hard, like you go as hard as you can. Like people may give you the whole try hard thing that like I was sometimes called a try hard but it's like you know what if i'm gonna be it like if i'm gonna do it i'm gonna do it 100 percent. why am i gonna half-ass it because there's no room to grow there so what's what kind of employees are you dealing with we are across the board so at the harvest facility we have about 20 employees 
Um, you know, we've got a couple employees at the ranch, we've got a couple employees at the feed yard. The beef company has a few employees and we are literally across the gamut. We've got 19 year old kids working at the harvest facility all the way to 65 year olds working at the harvest facility and everything in between. Um, most of the rest of our crew, you know, the craft beef crew or the feed yard crew, everybody's probably younger than me and I'm 41. But the flip side of that, you know, the tryhards, the whatever, those are the people I want. But the thing I've talked about with some of the other management within the company is, hey, we can get those rock stars. But keeping them is real hard. Getting them is not hard. You can you can sing a good game. You can get people excited. But once you get them on the team, is there enough roster spots for everybody? Or... You know, uh, I, I heard this from one of my professors in college. He said uh, he was uh, in the Navy and he we were talking about personnel one day. And he said, you got to know that in the Navy, some guys are just meant to hold a paintbrush. You can't grow some employees, which is hard. Um, I would argue that you can grow most employees if you want to grow them how they want to grow. But some people just want a paycheck. And they want to go home. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the one thing we are very intentional about is employee growth. You know, paying them a little more helps. And we we try to be as competitive as we can because it's hard to get good people for sure. But I think a lot of agriculture really struggles to get good people because they also think it's 1994. <laughs> and that's how they pay. Uh, you know, it's if I, I remember when we took the feed yard over. I was talking to my father-in-law. We were talking about what I thought our feed yard manager needed to make. And he said, there's no way you can afford that. You cannot afford to pay like that. And I said, Dave, I'll do respect. I cannot afford not to because I cannot be there every day. I will be there. I will go work at night. I'll go do whatever I got to do. But I cannot have that own real estate in my brain with all the other crap we get going on. So you pay people to do the right job. You educate them. You get them good equipment. Like, you know, we've got we've got equipment over there, you know, a squeeze chute and everything. It's nice equipment. It's easier to work on. You retain people that way. Well, that's very odd in the ag space, especially outside of farming. Like farmers love to have new equipment. That's one thing. Ranchers don't. Mm-hmm. Like they they want to be old school. They want to be traditional. And I respect the heck out of all of that. But just because you're 65 and that's how you want to do it does not mean that the 25-year-old kid wants to put up with that same bullshit. And you can say, well, it's my place. It's going to be my rules. That's fine. But you might be the only damn guy there if that's how you're going to run it. Um, so, hey, you know, XYZ employee, you want to learn something. You want to, what What do you want to chase? How can we help that? Uh, great example of that. We've got a nanny that helps us with the girls. And the girls are, are our youngest is two and a half. And she starts preschool in two weeks. Well, now our nanny is going to have extra time. And my wife mentioned to her, she said, hey, you know, you're going to have some extra time. And she works for a couple of companies when she's got time. Where, what does that look like for you? And our nanny came to me and she's like, I don't understand the question. <laughs> I said, and she's 23. She's basically our third kid at this point. And I said, well, what are you what are you thinking? She goes, Well, I gotta pay my bills. I was like, I want to be like, Well, no shit, you gotta pay your bills, man. 
I'm familiar with that problem. And I said, well, is that your final answer? She goes, I feel like it shouldn't be. But yeah, I, th I think that's my final answer. I said, all right. I said, well, here's what I want you to know. What I'm about to say, I don't want you to take as personally as you should. <laughs> and I said, that is the shallowest answer you could give me. And you can imagine the look on her face. It was like I threw cold water on her. And I said, but I need you to understand, I don't mean shallow in the way you think I'm saying shallow. I said, I'm saying shallow in the fact that you're not thinking about it. You're skin deep right now on thinking about it. You've been, you've been basically a part of our family for three years. You know all of our businesses. You travel with us on vacation. You know more about this than most of our employees do. What do you want to learn? She goes, well, I need to do what you want me to do. I said, well, to a point, sure. But I need you to be doing something you want to do so you are motivated to do it. That's not to say there's going to be crap that you have to do that you don't like, but the more I can have you loving what you're doing, the less of a pain in the butt it is for me. And she looked at me like I was freaking inventing fire. Like nobody had ever asked her that. And I think that's where a lot of the ag community really struggles because they say, I need a guy to drive this tractor. Well, okay. Sometimes you just need a butt in the seat. I get that. But the guy that just wants to put his butt in the seat is not the guy that's going to help you grow your business. He's not going to be the one that adds value. So if you're going to invest 18 bucks in a guy who wants to have a butt in the seat, as opposed to $21 to somebody that wants to give a damn, do you know what the net annual difference on $3 an hour is? There's 2,000 working hours in a year. It's six grand. That's not that much money. And there's so many people in ag that think that $3 an hour is nasty. I'm like, even if you bump it to 25, now it's a $7 an hour difference. That's $14,000. That's still, it's reasonably, if you got a $14,000 check, I'd be cool with it. You'd be cool with it, but it's not earth shattering money. And that person should hopefully add more value than that. So it's an investment in the right people, not a cost center. And that's the biggest thing I think ag struggles to see. I think there's actually a lot of, not even just ag, but, you know, a lot of, I would even go as far to say like a lot of blue collar workers struggle sure. with that aspect because we do have the older generation who, like you said, doesn't want to kind of go some of these new ways and that kind of stuff, which it's not always true. A lot of them will adapt and change because they have to, but you know, I mean, I come from the blue collar world. I work in, you know, I work a manual labor job and it's the same thing. It's like, what do you like all, there's only three of us in a company and we install pools and patios and nice. that's including my boss and that people are kind of amazed and we're like, well, we're equipment heavy. Like we, yeah. we get a lot of equipment and that's, it goes to show it makes me, I'm okay working a manual labor job because with equipment, there's less manual labor I actually have to do. So it makes it a little easier. And, but you like to, you said there is, you're not going to like everything you do. I like 90% of the pool install. There, there is that 10% of the certain days that I'm like, I really don't want to do this today, but it's just part of the job and you got to do, but mm -hmm. our boss looked at us like the other two, the other two of us. And he's like, you're good at this. I'm pushing you towards like, are you, do you want to go towards like this route later on in the company? Like, or, or to eventually where you're in charge of this kind of stuff. And the other guy likes this part of thing. Like, we're two different people, so it worked out really well. So 
it, it's letting the people do what they want to do and like letting them go towards that decision because that will keep them coming back instead of just there to get a paycheck they're actually doing something that they truly enjoy to do and i think that's very it's getting it's been lost in a lot of workforce where people don't love to go to work they don't like their job and the other one we the other one we see a lot of is the older generation withholding data from the younger generation and I've seen that in corporate settings. I've seen I've seen the old guard that has done this for 30 years pound their chest about the fact that they've done it for 30 years and then want to crap all over the new generation because it's like, well, you, you got to earn your stripes before you get that data. I'm like, aren't we on the same team, dude? <laughs> like, <laughs> why, why would you want to just intentionally cause that issue? Um, and that that culture thing is huge. And, and that culture thing is one of the things we're really working on this year with the company. Now that we've integrated these other operations so that, you know, the guys at the harvest facility, they're, they're taking cows and turning them into steaks. That's their job. But if they know what their accuracy means down the road and they know the opportunity, the beef company is going to provide for the harvest facility that never existed before that, the more they're going to want to row the boat that direction. Uh, For anybody that's in the business world, the great game of business, if you have not read that book, read that book because it takes a lot of things and breaks it down in a way that's kind of contrary to typical belief where I've seen companies literally do a 180 because of the employee engagement that you get back. And if people don't feel like they're part of the mission, especially in today's culture, they don't care to be around. Yeah, I agree 100%. A lot of people, I think, forget your employees are kind of what makes your business go around. It, I mean, yeah, you can give them all the right tools and put them, point them in the right direction. But if you don't have the right cu- culture and able to retain those employees, you don't have a company at the end of the day. Because like you said, you can't do everything yourself. You can't be they're at, at the the harvest facility 24 7 it's not something that you can do um but what so what size you know outfit like what size how many cattle do you have and everything like that mm-hmm. so remember we're not a we don't have mother cows so our numbers fluctuate year round um so right now we're ramping up for the summer season because starting in about april we're going to turn cattle out on grass um, so cattle are being brought in right now. We're, we're sourcing cattle from other ranches and putting together the pasture load of cattle that'll go out in April. And then depending on rainfall, because we don't have irrigation, uh, depending on rainfall, they come in usually mid-August to mid-October. Uh, last year was an exceptionally great year. So we didn't ship till almost, I think it was like October 10th. Um, so we can get up to six months on grass. It just depends. Um and then going into around June, we're going to start putting cattle on feed that'll start to then build up for that Christmas rush because we do a ton of business in the wintertime. Um, but the hard part with the company is when you say, well, how many cows does it own or what are you running? Um, we're about the same size as Glenn as far as harvest numbers go. That's going up. Uh, we've got some new products that we're launching that are going to take those numbers up. Um, but the harvest facility, uh, on average, for the last few years, has harvested about 1,500 cows a year. 
Um, we are not that big. So I think Glenn said they were around 400 last year. We're in that same camp. Uh, we're growing, of course. Uh, but part of our mission now is that harvest facility is a central part of the local economy. Well, I don't want to be that guy that then takes all that production space offline for other ranchers. I could. I mean, that wouldn't make me any friends. But at the end of the day, if I'm going to live this non-famine mindset, I'm trying to make room for our competitors that harvest in our same facility. We have our two of our biggest competitors are our customers now. And we've had meetings with all of them. Hey, what are you planning for the year? And they're like, well, we were kind of worried what was going to happen. I said, I get that. That's reasonable. Understand that's not why we're here. Like we have an opportunity. We could expand the facility, but I'm trying to make sure you guys are taken care of. How do we do this? Um, so, you know, we can harvest about 1500 a year. It's around 30 a week. Uh, we have a smoking system in there. We can make our own jerky, our own snack sticks, our own summer sausage. Um, and then we're exploring other lines. Like we're actually meeting with some, some government institutions to look at product for school districts. Um, so what, so we have the cattle side, which is ranching in the feed yard. And the second that that heartbeat stops at the harvest facility, they become beef. So now where are you moving that? Um, so we've got a lot of different products getting ready to come out and we're trying to be exceptionally mindful about how we grow to maximize the opportunity that calf, those cows that we're harvesting to be used to the best extent we can get done. Now, wasting as little as possible. So now we're exploring uh, moving some of the bones out of the facility into the dog food market with some white labelers that want to uh, expand some of their offerings uh, because, you know, those cattle gave their life so that you and I can sit here and talk about steak and be properly fueled. We need to be as diligent with that as we can to make sure that we're honoring them in the best way possible. Uh, I mean, what I like about that is like you look at, what like the native americans used to do anytime they killed an animal they used every single piece of that animal for something yep. Th well, that i grew is... up hunting so that was drilled into me as a kid that's so. what I, that's kind of what i was going to go to too because you know that's what i like about you know this the direct to consumer direct to consumer aspect is you know where your beef is coming from you know where mm -hmm. that steak came from you know the you know the face behind the company and that kind of stuff and it's to say like i grew up hunting as well and I, i'm big into hunting and i it's you know people are like oh you're just a trophy hunter and it's like no i'll, I'll shoot the does too but it's like the appreciation for that animal and being able to use that and like fuel yourself and your family and that kind of stuff it's it's very nice to know where it comes from because you know people talk about the environmental stuff and all this other other crap that we'll probably we'll get into too but you know at your at the end of the day your store about meat you don't necessarily know where it comes from and you know i don't i don't know your thoughts on it but like what glenn talked about with the the food lots and everything where like where they just send them and they'll feed them anything like you don't know what exactly you know your cow is ate but like you guys are open about what you do and mm -hmm. it's a bit out there it's not like you're you know that it's just it is what it is like you guys do it a different type of way than you know your store typical store-bought meat i feel like yeah we do um i'm a little uh more supportive of the commercial beef chain than i think glenn is um kind of speaking out of turn there so glenn uh if you disagree i apologize um so let's just look at the numbers cole 
How many cows a year or how many cows a week do you think we harvest in the United States? I have no idea. It's got to be probably a decent amount. 600,000. Every week. So at those numbers, and I'm not saying that the system is great, but it is a system and it delivers a ton of product all all across the world. I don't know how you change that system over the next 20 years. Because our cost of production and Glenn's cost of production and our brothers and sisters in ag that are not in that commercial space, our cost of production is higher. By that, we're going to lose a certain percentage of the population because I still want them to be able to buy beef. And if that beef's not mine, I'm okay with that. If you got to buy a $3 hamburger at Walmart because that's what you can afford, I support the hell out of that. That is safe beef. It is inspected it is nutritious and if that's what you've got to feed your family by god do that um we can do some different stuff um some of the stuff i think in the feed yards gets a little demonized um i have seen the skittle thing i know glenn mentioned feeding skittles or candy waste uh blood meal is that's a, a very outdated feed stuff most people don't use that in in cattle anymore most of that goes to fish food and chicken feed actually um so most of what you're going to see across the country is going to be some sort of a concentrate corn, soybeans, kind of with cattle. Most of the soybeans actually go into pigs. Um, but what you end up running into regionally is different waste products. And that's what people call them. Like for instance, where I'm from in Oregon, they feed a lot of bread waste, which is basically bread dough that didn't rise or didn't something. So think of the caloric value of that. And that gets mixed with a ration in a feed truck. What are we supposed to do with that? You know, and from where I'm at in Oregon, they do a lot of carrots. They do a lot of canning. So pea waste, carrot waste, which is just chopped up peas and carrots. Um, And by the way, that's all mixed in a ration that's monitored by a PhD nutritionist every day. So it's exceptionally intentional. So if they are feeding Skittles, which I have seen, I've seen pictures of, they're feeding it for the carb load. They're not feeding it to like, oh, we're going to give them Skittles because that's what we got. But the other thing to really know, when you formulate a ration for cattle in a feed yard, you formulate it based on the feed ingredients you're going to have for a long time. You aren't changing that every week. You can't afford to. And secondarily, you're going to cause animals to get sick. Uh, you're going to mess with their gut. So basically the way a cow's nutrition system works, you know, they're a ruminant animal, right? We've heard about the cows with four stomachs, right? Basically what a cow's nutrition system does is you put something in there and the the bugs, the bacteria in their stomach break that down into proteins and the proteins are absorbed. So when we take cows from pasture, like literally we have cow pasture 40 feet behind me, We take cows from that pasture to the feed yard and we put them on a finish ration. That finish ration has five stages before they're really on feed because we're slowly adjusting the microbes in their stomach so that it basically changes the the bugs and how they're operating. Uh, But that's all very intentional. And for us at our little yard to say, oh, we're going to, oh, we got a load of whatever. We won't even do that because the potential risk is exceptionally high. And 
it's just not worth it because if you if you get a cheap load of something, it's going to be gone in three weeks. You won't want to reformulate for that short amount of time. Um, so the feed yards do capture or catch a lot of hell with what they do. And I, to some degree, I look at the feed yards. I go, man, how do we, because we have a feed yard. I've said that, I don't know, half a dozen times now. I've actually asked my marketing guy, how do we share this with our consumer? A lot of our consumers know it. We've had we've had customers at the feed yard. We take pictures there. It's not like it's a secret. But the interesting thing is, how do you make that as cool as cows on grass? And you don't. There's just no way to make it look that cool. Uh, but where we live in Colorado, this is the great way to think about a feed yard. What are we doing with grain and silage and things of that nature? We're storing energy from the summer to feed it right now. I mean, two weeks ago, it was 30 below zero here. You have to feed cows. They can't be on grass, um, especially Finnish cattle, because Finnish cattle have an exceptionally different requirement for feed than a mother cow. You know, they're growing, they're putting on weight, they're doing other things. Mother cows have almost no need for protein. They're already grown. They, they need energy, but they don't have near the nutritional need of a Finnish calf that's going to give you the type of steak experience that you as a customer would want. And, you know, to look at the commercial supply chain in the grocery stores, imports are a whole other question. But if it is U.S. grown beef and some of the labeling stuff, we could certainly talk about. I feed it to my kids. I've eaten it. Actually, during COVID, we were so, we were so overloaded with orders. We were buying beef at the grocery store. It was not as good. There was certainly a quality difference. And the main reason for that is we can age um, at our harvest facility. So similar, like you take a deer in Ohio, what do you hang them for? A week or two? In the beef cattle supply chain in the commercial space, if they harvest a cow on Monday, that cow is out of the plant by Thursday. So they chill them for two days, they break them, and then they're gone. But like there's a big harvest facility probably an hour from here. They harvest 6,000 a day. So if you don't move them that fast, you run out of real estate. Mm -hmm. At our facility, we we hang the whole carcass for 21 days before we break it into steaks. That flavor, that tenderness comes through in the meat quality. And it's simply that way because the the big plants can't do that. So we have an opportunity to do things that are different. They cost more. Our cost of production on you know, breaking down a steer into steaks is about three times what the big guys pay. So if we want to look at that whole system economically versus flavor and quality, there's so many ways to dissect it. Um, but I guess what I would say is, while the big four packers uh, control 85% of the market, they're very necessary because without them, we can't feed everybody. So I wanted to ask too, and you might have answered it actually. Is it is it because of the aging thing? But I know I notice a lot of times, like when you buy, you know, store bought ground or that kind of stuff, it's very greasy compared to you know. My brother had a cow; one of his cows butchered, and we I I ate that, cooked the the ground, and there's like minimal to no grease. Why mm-hmm. is that? Is it because of the aging thing? Does that play a part in it, or what? Is, what kind of what are some of the factors of that aspect? Aging is going to be a huge part of that because one of the things aging does other than tenderness and flavor is it releases water. So when you're taking commercial grind from the store, 
there's so much water content in that that like you notice it when you cook it off, right? And the problem you have is when there's so much water content and then you cook it off, it now dries out because it opens all the basically the when that water cooks off, it leaves a void in the meat and then that meat just dries out. So the aging has basically condensed that flavor and there's not as much water. So when you cook it, you're actually cooking what you meant to cook. Um, and that's one of the biggest things. So an example of that is like, I don't know if you're much of a brisket guy. Just recently started getting into it. <laughs> I, I got you, man. We'll send, we'll send you an aged brisket. You'll never go back. So if you take a big packer brisket from the grocery store, those things are typically, we'll call it a big one just to do the math really easily. They're 20 pounds, right? You're going to trim four to six pounds of just straight fat off of that thing because those guys in the plant are not trimming it. And now maybe you want to trim yours a special way and that's all fine. So now you have a, just for, again, for easy math, you trimmed five pounds and you got 15 pounds of brisket you put on the smoker. The general math is you're going to have about 50% of that weight that comes off in finished pounds, like finished meat ready to go on your plate. So you had a 20 pound brisket, you now got seven and a half pounds of beef left when it's all done cooking. If you take 20 pounds of our beef and smoke it, we, we pre-trim all of our stuff. Um, so when you get a brisket from us, it's like season it, put it on the smoker. But if you take 20 pounds of ours, you're, well, go back down to 15, assume the trimming was already done, as opposed to having seven and a half percent, or excuse me, seven and a half pounds from that packer brisket, you're going to have closer to 11 pounds of ours, strictly from water loss. That's how much water's in that stuff. And that creates, like, especially if you've ever had a dry brisket, there was probably a ton of water in it because as it sizzles and that water has to migrate, it opens a path for that fat that renders when you're cooking it to drain as well. So now you've just got all that moisture just pouring out of the brisket, which is why a lot of guys wrap and do all this other stuff. I don't even wrap our brisket. I just cook it. So there's a lot of meat science that goes into that um, just from a weight and a texture standpoint. And 90% of that is going to be water. All right. That I uh, see, I never, I don't know, that's something I never thought that I never knew exactly why. Because I remember like the first time that I cooked my brother's ground, I was just like, there's no grease. Like, mm -hmm. usually I have to, you know, empty out a crap ton of ge grease. There's no grease. And it, and the taste is 100%. It is just way better. It, yeah. It's like, I don't get me wrong, I buy store bought beef and every store bought everything else nine times out of 10. But that when you are able to, you know, get, you know, that from you guys or from you, you know, a, a family friend that just got their a cow butcher and that kind of stuff. That meat has a unique, like a complete, not complete different, but it does have a, a different taste to it. Um, yeah. I'll get people the, that ask us that are like, Hey, uh, you know, I, I want 90, 10. And I'm like, you don't want 90, 10 from us. You want 85, 15. That's our standard grind. We have two people we do an 80, 20 with. Um, and they're burger food trucks and they want that extra fat content because they do a smash burger. That makes sense. But for the, the lay person that just wants burger, I, Hey, I need a leaner. I'm like, you really don't want it leaner. There's no water content in our burger for the most part. Try our standard and let me know. And they never ask again. 
you mentioned the labels thing. I kind of want to go back to it and see, like, how can you tell if it is U.S. meat versus imported? Is there is there something to look for? Man, that's tough. Um, so the reason a lot of beef is imported. So let's talk about that first. We have an excess amount of fat on our beef in this country because we do feed grain. So you're going to have 30 to 50 pounds of fat per animal that needs somewhere to go. And so we end up importing a lot of beef that's lean trim from other countries that we then grind that fat with. So you have a, a higher likelihood of having imported beef in burger, typically. Um, on the steak side, it's less common, unless you're down in Florida somewhere, you're further south, where now it's harder to ship frozen or finished cattle, uh, finished beef from Colorado to Florida. It's easier to bring it up on a boat from Brazil. Those are those get a little dicey. It should be labeled. I don't know the labeling requirements on country of origin labeling. Um, I know it's been a huge topic of conversation. Uh, there is some scuttlebutt about the fact that you can bring beef in from another country, but if you grind it here, it's now a product of the U.S. because it was manufactured here. Um, there's a lot of pushback on that. I totally understand it. The interesting thing to your viewers, and again, I'm not making a case for it, but again, I, I just go through the math on some of this stuff to say, is it functional? So we have 330 million people in this country. And the average American eats 78 pounds of, of beef a year. The average Finnish steer is going to produce 450 pounds of Finnish meat. We can't, we don't raise enough here. We have to feed people something. And that doesn't count for exports because we send a lot of steak and offal and other product around the world. So when you start doing some of that math, it's like, well, okay, maybe we need to import. I'm not saying it's a great idea. I think the labeling should be a little more transparent. But for those of us that are really after a certain product, there is no good way to understand the labeling system unless you know someone like myself. Uh, for instance, this is one I've talked about a few times on some other podcasts. If we talk about natural cattle, I'm talking cows wandering around. If they are natural, that's no antibiotics, no additional hormones, all the buzzwords, right? All the stuff you're used to hearing. But if I say natural beef, the word natural means something totally different. The word natural in the beef space, so no longer live cows, but meat product, the word natural means uh, minimally processed, no artificial ingredients. So if you want to read a label to make a buying decision, I would strongly caution against that. Now, I would say all the beef in the grocery store is safe. It's nutritious. It's whatever. But if you're going to the store to find the $12 a pound burger from XYZ label, really dig into that label. It'll probably blow your socks off. Because if, I mean, the amount of money it costs to get certified organic, blah, 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 is incredible, especially at scale. So you're, if you're getting all these labels and the packaging is super fancy and it's in every Costco, do you really think 
that that's better or more local or better raised than somebody like myself because those guys at that scale are huge. Where's it coming from? And just because you paid for a really pretty label doesn't mean a whole lot or it, it's just a slippery slope. So the what I tell people is don't make buying decisions based on a pretty package. If you have a certain thing you want to find out, go find a rancher. That rancher will likely answer the phone or similar. You just reached out. I think you reached out on IG or did you reach out on email? I reached out on Instagram and then emailed okay. you. Yeah. So reach out on IG. All that stuff drops to us. Drops to my wife and I. No question. Uh, there's hundreds of ranchers around the country that do the same thing we do. Uh, there's a lot. And now, some of them can't do it at scale. Some of them can only do a little bit. Some of them can't ship. There's a ton of other stuff that makes it work or not work for different people. Um, but I would say that any of those label curiosities uh, are just kind of hard to figure out unless you're like in it. If that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I've never really looked into it. I just I, I didn't know if there was something that you could tell what is which is which. But um, well, the, kinda... the weirdest one is grass fed. Everybody wants to talk grass fed. Mm -hmm. Technically, our cattle are grass fed. Grass fed means uh, they at one point ate a diet that didn't contain any grain. Well, well is it by... technically like every cow? Grass fed, really? 100%. I mean, pretty much every cow starts on grass, no matter what. For the most part, yes. Um, but here's the really hard part: uh, FSIS, Food Safety Inspection Service, has a different definition for grass fed than the USDA. You'll find four different governmental definitions for grass fed, and the USDA quit regulating the term grass fed in 2016. As a as a label claim because it was too convoluted. So I mean, we've even got pushback from other producers to say you're not grass fed because you finish with grain. And I'm like, well, it depends on which definition we're looking at, man. Like, call me, I'll answer the phone, shoot me an email, I got you, whatever. Um, but if that's the hill we all want to die on, I just I find that kind of unnecessary. <laughs> I mean, how realistic is it? I mean, I know Glenn is one of them, but like how often do you truly see somebody that is 100% grass-fed 100% of the time? They they exist. There's a there's a few of them out there. Um, like probably the most famous one recently is White Oak Pastures. Um, Will Harris, he's been on Rogan a couple of times. He's a solid dude. I actually sent him an email uh, the first time he was on White Oak Pastures because he did he did some very good work for the ag industry talking about the financial implications of some of this stuff. And we talked, or I just sent him an email and said thank you. And you know what he's been able to do? Like if you look at that water video that is so famous now that he's shown on Rogan a bunch of times, that is unequivocal. Like man, that absolutely helped that operation. But he gets 60 inches of rain a year. I get 11. There's just a natural ability to do or not do that. Um, actually, there's a great grass finish guy that we met at an event. Uh, we spoke at an event for Colorado State University about a month ago. Uh, it's the James Ranch. They're out of Durango, Colorado. 
they have hay fields that they can irrigate and then they have other hay fields they keep tall and then they have grass finished. They're on grass all year, but they're able to rotate. And they're in the middle of like downtown Durango, but they don't ship. They don't, they're, they have certain things they do, but they have a ranch or they have a restaurant on the ranch, similar to a white oak pastures. Um, but at scale, grass finishing becomes pretty tough, especially if you're in the West or how far are you from a population center or will your climate allow for it? Um, and the hard part, like I, I saw a label one time back to the labeling conversation. It said grass finished and there was a star next to grass finished. And I looked on the back of the label and it said grass finished the last 30 days. But if you look at the fat, the fat is like bright white and bright white fat means they were fed a concentrate ration at some point. Because if they are strictly eating grass, they are strictly on a grass diet, you're going to have that yellowish fat. And that yellow fat is yellow because it contains beta carotene. And when we go to a concentrate ration in our feed yard, it takes about 75 days for that fat to turn white. And that white fat is where you get that buttery flavor that everybody's used to in the U.S. Where you get that more gamey flavor. Like I, I've always said, if I want gamey flavor, I harvest an antelope. <laughs> um, so it's just, it's very dependent. Um, and it's sometimes people talk about it in a certain way. Sometimes people do it for marketing. Sometimes people might not know because the definitions are so crazy. Uh, man, it's, it's an interesting space and COVID really launched that direct to consumer market really forefront because nobody, everybody realized how fragile that big supply chain is. And it's been interesting watching because I know people that like went huge direct to consumer the year of COVID and the year after that, they sold all their cows. They, they couldn't keep it going because it's not an easy thing. What are your thoughts on the meat based diet and like the carnivore diet? Because, you know, there is a lot of back and forth with do the carnivore diet, don't do it and that kind of stuff. What are your thoughts on it? And, you know, is it a good thing? And is it a bad thing? Or is it for everybody? Even? I think it's exceptionally arrogant for anybody to say something is for everybody. I mean, outside of water and oxygen, right? <laughs> yeah. So I will say my story with the carnivore diet, man, I'm down 80 pounds. Hmm. I, I got into jujitsu. I was carnivore. I'm still mainly carnivore. Uh, it's been an amazing home base for me. So, you know, growing up, my mom was an amazing cook. And man, if you had a bad day, eat some food. If you had a good day, eat some food. Food was just everywhere. And so I developed this unhealthy relationship with, you know, for lack of a better term, eating my feelings. I had to break that cycle. Well, I tried keto for a while. Well, if I do this, then I can do that. And I'm constantly arguing with myself, having this freaking wrestling match in my brain about why I can or can't eat the pasta. Because let's be fair. If I could have a six pack from eating pasta, I'd do that because pasta is freaking amazing. Yes. And potatoes. I freaking love potatoes. But what carnivore did for me as an elimination diet was no, you can't do that. Like true, false. It basically put my brain in a position that I couldn't argue with myself. And intermittent fasting has been huge for me. Um, talking about the science of it, man, I, I don't even want to get into that. That's not my jam. Uh, there are other people better suited for that. Dr. Baker being one of them. 
you know, get the book, The Carnivore Diet. It talks through so much of it. But some of the stories I've heard of people reversing type 2 diabetes or even uh, one of my business partners, he went carnivore. He like jacked up his shoulder and he was fighting it for months. He went carnivore. Like three weeks later, all the inflammation was gone. It's nuts. Um, but what I would say, you know, what worked best for me was I, I went carnivore for about three three months. And then I would add something and I would watch what happened by blood glucose. Did I did I retain water? Did I whatever? The craziest thing for me was I'd be on carnivore and just eating beef, right? And then I would have pork loin. Dude, my hands would swell up. I'd start retaining water. So what I would say is find a baseline for your own health and then start to try to figure it out. You know, I wear a, I've got a whoop strap on. I wear that thing religiously. It tells me about my, my heart rate. It tells me about my sleep. I'll tell you if I eat too late, my stress is high at night, but it's more about wanting to do your own audit and figure it out. You know, depending on your ancestral heritage, you may or may not process certain things well. But at the end of the day, uh, I've got a couple of guys I do jujitsu with that are vegans. And we go back and forth and give each other a bad time. And they're they're solid dudes. And I asked them one day, I'm like, man, why are you guys vegan? They're like, we just like how we feel when we're eating that way. I can't argue with that. They're healthy. They're muscular. It looks like it's going well for them. And I support their right to make that decision. Um and it's, I, I don't think there's such a thing as an ideal diet for everybody. Um, but the one thing I had to really talk to myself about, and this is to anybody struggling with weight, I see so many people that go down this rabbit hole of I'm going to lose weight, and they trade one unhealthy relationship with food for another. So finding where you can mentally sustain that loss is more important than what you're doing, in my opinion. I mean, I lost that 80 pounds in 2020. It's still gone. That's the hard part. I'd lost weight before. It wasn't that big of a deal. It sucks, but you can do it. But do you want to have it back in six months? And, you know, carnivore for, carnivore for me is that home base that if I go on vacation or go to an event or... Whatever, man. Just just decide to intentionally fall off the rails because we're in an awesome restaurant. I can get back on board because I know where home base is. What exactly does like the carnivore? Is it it's strict? Is it strictly beef? Is it like and then you can add? Is it salt and pepper or like what all does it consist of? If you're going super hardcore on carnivore, uh, it's meat, salt, water. And Which you is, can I, that's what Peterson, Jordan Peterson does, I, I believe, isn't it? I actually think they're the they're on the lion diet, which is only uh, red meat. Yeah. So, uh, and then some people will, you know, call it carnivore, and it'll be meat, eggs, dairy. Dairy is okay. Uh, dairy for me isn't as necessary. My my girls freaking live on milk; they love it. But dairy for me, there's so much sugar in it, it spikes my blood glucose. So I watch that. Uh, cheese is better for me than milk, but it's, it's just a, a more intentional approach to what you're actually putting in your body. And it's, I mean, as you get older, it changes, as you get older, you process alcohol differently. 
you know, I mean, when I was your age, man, I was running a construction company where, you know, drinking beer was just the way you did it. And then you got to come back from that to, you know, now I'm 40. And if I drink two beers, my head hurts the next day where two beers last time was like, that was before you left the shop. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's again, just that intentionality of knowing where you're at and where you're going and finding things to measure so you can manage what's going on uh, instead of letting all that stuff manage you. Yeah. I really also like the, you mentioned, you know, the whoop, because I think it's so important to have a watch or something that monitors that I wear a Garmin personally. Um, mm -hmm. It was actually gifted to me. So that was part of the reason I had it, but I've had the Apple watch and I think it's important. And when you really start looking at it, like your sleep, your, all those different things that it can show you, it starts to end like, especially too, because one thing my boss personally, or he started doing, he started doing cold plunges and he goes, I look at my stress levels and like, you know, before I started cold plunging, it's this big wave of up and down, up and down, up and down. It's like, and then I start cold plunging and it's like a steady, smaller up and down. Like it's not hmm. the stress levels and that kind of stuff. Like what it, I think it's very important for people to have a, some type of watch that does measure that stuff because it can help you and it makes you realize, hey, maybe like, oh, when I eat this certain food, you know, this level goes up, this goes up, like certain things. I think it's important. Like how, how beneficial has it been for you? Like how long have you been wearing it and how beneficial has it been? Uh, almost two years. And it's been outstanding. Like it, it, the best, the best part is now it's like, man, tomorrow's going to be rough. <laughs> like, or, you know, oh, we're going to Vegas, we're going to Vegas at the end of next month for a Forbes event. Yeah. I, my whoop's probably not going to show some favorable results for about 72 hours. But then you get home and then you work on it. You know, it's back to, back to the business conversation. You can't manage what you can't measure, period. That's your health. That's your lifestyle. That's your money. That's your business. That's whatever. So if you're saying, well, I think I feel better today. It's okay. Okay. I, I'll buy that. But it's not that hard to actually have data. It's not that hard to really start getting vision into some of that stuff. So you can manage yourself and not life man, not let life manage you. This has been a fantastic conversation. Is there anything else? You, actually, I do have one more question. I forgot. Sorry. If you were to say like one product off of your website for people, if they're listening and want to buy something, what would you recommend? Like, what would you think is the best thing for somebody to try? I think the best starter pack we have is called the variety box. Um, so that's one thing we've done with a company is we, we don't just sell halves quarters, you know, high dollar stuff. We have, you know, you can get a box of beef for a couple hundred bucks. You can get in for a reasonable price. Uh, we have subscription functionality on the website, et cetera. Uh, but I've got a, a couple that actually reached out right after the first of the year and they got their first box last week and they wanted to buy a whole cow which is not a small purchase, you know, it's up above four grand. It's not a small amount. And I said, Hey, go on the web, buy a variety box, test out the product. I don't want you to be unhappy. I think you'll love it. Uh, we've never had anybody complain about product quality, but get the variety box. It's got six pounds of burger. It's got a chuck roast. It's got two steak types in it. You get a good cross section of what you're going to get. And then let's talk about the bigger order. Uh, and the variety box is one of our most popular items. It goes out all the time. Uh, now, there are a lot of people that don't like pot roast. 
They just, you know, their mom made pot roast. It sucked. So if, if you're not the pot roast type, get the griller box. The griller box is just burger and steak. So, uh, but we do have some cool stuff coming. So when's this going to drop, Cole? This will be out the 29th. So four days from now. Yeah. Okay. So probably within a week of this dropping, uh, we're going to have our jerky sticks up on the website. Jerky sticks, literally labels are being printed right now. And I'm here to tell you they are amazing. So in the box I'm going to send you, I'm going to include some. Uh, we've got a smoked pepper flavor that is my personal favorite. It's got smoked jalapeno, uh, good stuff. Uh, and then the next foray we're going to do, uh, which I think is going to be in, in a collaboration with some other cool people, we're actually working on that right now, is we're going to be dropping some beef bacon. And that beef bacon is going to be made from short ribs or brisket. It's going to be legit. Uh, and we've actually got test runs of that going right now at the production facility uh, that we own. So it's all, again, coming out of our, our facilities straight to you guys. I do have one final question. It's my sure. favorite question to ask. I don't know if I got to it on Glenn's episode. We, we kind of ran long on that one. But if you could go back in time and tell your 16-year-old self one thing, what would it be? I think the thing that hampered me the most when I was young was I thought anger was a good response. It's not. You can't put a plate back together after you smash it on the floor. You can't take back words that you didn't mean. You can't take back something you said that whether or not you were justified in saying it makes you look like an asshole. And I'm not going to put that blame on anybody. I should have managed that stuff my myself. But anger is a crutch for somebody that's not truly understanding the situation. And I might be making people angry by saying that, and I understand. But if anybody wants to chat, just hit me up. I'm happy to give you advice or let you know what I worked on. But my career really started to take off when I put anger away, for the most part. Because if you've yeah, ever, because so if you've ever worked cows, it's pretty hard not to get angry when they try to run you the hell over. It still comes up. But Jocko actually made a post about this just a week or so ago. He said, "Losing your temper is losing control." It happens to all of us. I get it. But as a young man, even into my early thirties, anger was too quick of a solution for me. And if you're that guy that's, oh, I got him. I told him, I told that guy he sucked. What good did that do you, man? Now he's living rent-free in your head. Put the anger away and move on. And that is something that uh, I have, I'm really working on with my kids to teach them a different way. And it's it's a monkey on everybody's back. Everybody gets their turn. Um, I had a phone call right before we got on the podcast that I really wanted to get angry, but it also wasn't going to help. It might have made me feel better for a minute. Then I'd have felt like an a-hole, and it wasn't going to help with who I was talking to. So it's very interesting to see that really come around. And that's when I talk to people about, you know, is college necessary, blah, 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 blah. College was necessary for me because it helped me mature, kind of. Um, but 
but that anger thing, man, it's, it lives in all of us, but man, finding a different route for that's a big deal. Yeah, it's, I can, I know exactly what you're talking about. And like you said, like, I'm not perfect at it. I, uh-huh. I used to be like really bad to like, you know, especially with technology was like the, I love technology, but then when it didn't work, like I, I would lose my mind. And, uh-huh. you know, it's almost like that gamer rage that people talk about, like gamers throwing their controllers, punching TVs. And like, I would have that and I'd yeah. have that when I, as I've gotten older, and that kind of stuff, which I'm just like, I'm not, I'm still not perfect at it. I still got a lot to learn. I understand that, but it's just like, you start to, it's, I kind of take a lot of the five minute approach of like, all right, I can be pissed off about this for five minutes, but after that, I have to move on from it. Like yeah. not forget about it. Like you still need to fix the problem, whatever it is, but you got to move past it because if you let, and especially like you said, the whole rent free, if you let other people, especially live rent free in your head, you're never going to continue to grow you have to continue to just move past it like i i'm to the point now where people will say things to me and it it takes there it still happens for some things you know it, they, they live there and I'll, I'll snap back at them but a lot of times i just laugh like all right yeah <laughs> cool <laughs> well the thing that's really helped me on the anger front for anybody that wants it if you want to get angry about something just look around and say is this going to matter in six months because most of the time, the answer is no. I'm mad right now. Two weeks from now is probably not going to matter. But that, that six-month deal, is it going to matter six months from now? Is it really that big of a deal? That's one of those things that really helps steer me, for sure. Yeah, and I, uh, I agree with your college statement as well, because the college, I don't think college like you don't need college but college my mom has even told me the best thing for you was college yeah i don't yeah. use my degree currently but being able to mature and grow and like you know you're out on your own you got to figure it out now you got to figure out your problems you have to time manage you have to do all this stuff and i was a college athlete so that helped with that side of things keeping you know you i had to learn time management or there goes my you know my my college career because i don't have the grades so yeah. it, I, I think college is important in that aspect. It, I go back and forth on college. I, like sometimes I say, oh, I wish I didn't go. But at the same time, I would not have this podcast. I wouldn't be having this conversation right now. I'd, I'd be in a whole different spot in my life, and who knows where I'd be. It, it could be better. It could be worse. Nobody exactly knows. You can't sit here and play the what-if game, but it, it works out the way it works out. But, Jeff, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Where can people find your meat and find you guys on social media? Colorado Craft Beef all across the board. So just look us up, coloradocraftbeef.com. We ship every week. Uh, just launched a new website. We've got big subscription discounts. So check it out. If you ever got any questions, just uh, phone numbers and emails are all on the website. I will be putting all the links to the websites and the socials in the episode description. So be sure to go get you some because... I know I will be, and I'm super excited about it. But with that, that's a wrap on episode 223 of the Roughnecks podcast. Until our ex- next, until our next episode, which will be on Wednesday, with another episode of Reno's Rants. You guys know the deal. Life is hard, and it's gonna knock you down just like a bull does to a bull rider. Don't let that bull of life walk all over you. Get up, grab a bull by the horns, and take control of your life. Roughnecks, out.